Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode, I interview Jerome Pesek, a leading litigator in the areas of eminent domain and land use law. A frequent author and speaker on eminent domain topics, Jerry is a trusted authority for several print and broadcast news outlets. Jerry and I discuss some of the important matters he has handled, including a landmark case in which he secured for his client the largest eminent domain verdict in Michigan history. Throughout the interview, Jerry also provides useful insights on selecting a jury and on the unique challenges of litigating against government entities. Jerome Pesek, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Thank you, Max. Jerry, I'm really excited to have you on this podcast. Jerry, you are the preeminent eminent domain attorney in Michigan. You've handled a number of very interesting and important cases, things that actually affect not only your clients' lives, but our public life. And I'm excited to talk to you about your practice today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I want to drill down on a particular case you handled and also just talk more generally about um, some of your insights about the work that you do. But first, could you start by telling our listeners a bit about yourself and about your law practice and your law firm? Sure. Well, I've uh, I've been practicing for over 40 years now. I hate to admit it. Um, I am primarily my uh, an eminent domain attorney. That's my first level of uh, expertise. And I also do some land use litigation, um, which has a strong relationship oftentimes to eminent domain work and other real estate matters. But uh, the largest part of my practice is, is eminent domain. I was the, uh, for many, many years, I was the managing partner of a small boutique, primarily eminent domain law firm. At the beginning of this year, I merged my small firm with a somewhat larger firm. Uh, the name of the firm is Williams, Williams, Ratner, and Plunkett. The Williams, Williams firm is a, a more, more of a full service firm. And part of my motivation for, for relocating here was to be able to provide more services to my clients, which I didn't really have the capacity to do at the smaller firm and take advantage of their, the expertise that people have here, as well as gain some additional support for, for my core practices, so to speak. Good, good. Well, they're a fantastic bunch of attorneys, and I'm sure they're thrilled to have you on board. So I hope that's been a, a good match for both of you. So far, it's been a good match, and I'm I'm happy to be here, and it's, it seems to be working out very well. Good. And then just to level set for our listeners, what is eminent domain, and what does eminent domain and condemnation law involve? Well, eminent domain at its fundamental core is a constitutional process. It is the right of governmental agencies to uh, involuntarily acquire property from private property owners. Every state and the federal government as well, has different rules and procedures that govern eminent domain. There's some uniqueness to it. At its core, regardless of the uniqueness of the procedures, in order to exercise eminent domain, a governmental agency has to have a public purpose and a public necessity to acquire the property. And interestingly, in different places, that means different things. And here in Michigan, it has meant different things over the years. Originally, Michigan adopted more of a federal type rule. This goes back to the early 1980s, where you could not only use eminent domain for public projects, but the definition was broadened so that by way of example, you could acquire private property to in turn turn over to private businesses 
with the justification being that if it was creating jobs, a tax base, et cetera, there was a public purpose behind it. And there was a very famous case in Michigan involving a GM manufacturing plant um, where the city of Detroit acquired a very, very large sloth of property, miles and miles, business after business, home after homes, to assemble and provide for the uh, development and construction of a General Motors assembly plant. That was the rule of the day in Michigan up until the early 2000s when the Supreme Court of our state decided that that really wasn't a great idea and that really wasn't a public purpose that the founders had envisioned. And they overruled Paul Town and eliminated those types of takings. Interestingly, at the federal level, by way of example, and in other states, those type of takings, taking private property to facilitate business development sort of things are still allowed under, under certain circumstances. The basic rule of thumb is that if there is a public purpose, is that a property owner is entitled to just compensation for his property. And oftentimes, and, and that is in large part, what my practice has been about over the years. In most instances, there is usually a disagreement between the governmental agency and property owners as to what that property that they want to take is worth. And that results in a court proceeding and ultimately, in many instances, jury trials to make a determination as to how the property should be valued and how much compensation a property owner should be paid. Okay. Okay. That's very interesting. Helpful synopsis. And then you, Jerry, you represent the property owners as opposed to the government entities. Yes, that's correct. Okay. How did you get into this area of law? It's such a a unique niche and you're known far and wide throughout Michigan, maybe beyond for your specialized expertise in this area. You really are the guy to call when somebody has a, uh, an issue in this area. How did you... How did you get into this niche? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting. To a certain extent, it was kind of happenstance. But when I was in my senior year of law school, I was like most people looking for a job. And I met up with a couple of gentlemen, young guys in their mid-30s that had a very active eminent domain practice. It's kind of an apprentice type business. And what I mean by that is it's not some, you know, in law school, you may, if you get 10 minutes of eminent domain, that's probably a lot in either your constitutional law or real property law practice uh, classes. So these two gentlemen had actually broken off from another eminent domain firm where they were trained by some of the preeminent eminent domain experts in Michigan. The gentlemen I went to work for were, were two gentlemen by the name of Walter Mason and Fred Steinhardt. And, and they took me under their wing and, um, you know, like I say, it's an apprentice type business. I learned a lot. They sent me to they sent me to appraisal school uh, so that I can understand how appraisers. Oh, really? Work. Yeah. Okay. Was, wow. You know, and it's critical to have an understanding of how appraisers work and how appraisals are prepared in order to to be successful in this business. And I stayed with them for many many years, and then broke off into a a into my own small firm around 2000, uh, where I practiced until I came here to Williams, Williams, Ratner, and Plunkett. So it, it was just one of those things, I would say it was happenstance, but it, it ended up working out very well, obviously. Right, right. Okay. You fell into it, but found you had an interest and aptitude and fell in with the right attorneys and got the right training and the rest is history, right? Good guys. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, there are any number of cases we could talk about, but I want to talk about one called City of Detroit v. Detroit Plaza Limited Partnership, which I know you handled. A uh, very important eminent domain case in Michigan, really a blockbuster case. I just want to walk through that case. It's a very significant case in this area. Can you kind of just set us up a little bit and tell us just some of the the background, the facts that led this thing to be taken to court? Sure. Well, 
So uh, I'm going to take you back to like the late 90s to begin with. Um, in the late 90s, there was a lot of major uh, economic development happening in the city of Detroit. The city of Detroit and the county it's in, Wayne County, had formed a uh, an authority to acquire land to build two new stadiums, which are now Comerica Park, where the Detroit Tigers play, and Ford Field, where the Detroit Lions played. And while that was all going on, and, and our firm was very active in those cases, the state of Michigan, through its voters, legalized casinos in the state of Michigan. And um, after the vote, there was specific legislation that allowed for three casinos. And I think the language was in cities that had populations of like over 600,000, and that it was up to the local community to decide where those casinos would be sited. And for the listener's reference, there was only one city in the state of Michigan that had that population. It was the city of Detroit at the time. So the city conceived of a project on the riverfront, actually. What they wanted to do is the Detroit riverfront, historically, it had a lot of industrial development. And to kind of set the scene, this is sort of what was sometimes referred to as the East Riverfront. For those who are familiar with Detroit, there's a major development on the uh, that took place in the 1970s called the Renaissance Center, uh, which is on the Detroit Riverfront, kind of in the heart of downtown. And the property we're ta- the properties we're talking about were just to the east of the Renaissance Center, right on the riverfront. There were a number of like cement batch plants, like ultimate industrial type uses, which the city had a desire to relocate so that they could develop that East Riverfront. And there were a lot of also a lot of older buildings and things that had seen their better days. Let's put it that way. So this the city conceived of a project um, which they called the Waterfront Reclamation and Casino Development Project, where they were going to reclaim the waterfront, so to speak, put in walks and things of that nature, and also put in the casino. We were going to put in the casinos directly on the riverfront. And then just north of the casinos, which would, as you move closer to the downtown areas, they were going to do the so-called reclamation in terms of building pathways and things of that nature for people to enjoy and facilitating additional development. I represented a a client called Detroit Plaza Limited Partnership who owned a prime piece of real estate immediately to the east of the Renaissance Center. It was 6.2 acres. Um, and my clients who were sophisticated developers had intended to do, you know, high rise condominiums, retail, that type of development on the site. The city eventually, basically with, with regard to price decided to not relocate the casinos there, that sort of fell apart. Uh, but they still went ahead with the reclamation portion of the project And my client's parcel was one of the key parcels in terms of getting that project going. Right. And if I can just pause there with what might be a a very basic question, even though your client was looking to develop the property, wasn't looking to just uh, maintain an existing industrial use, a concrete batching uh, facility or what have you, but wanted a development into a multi-use for a multi-use purpose, the city wanted that same parcel for part of its project. The city, yeah, my client. I mean, my clients were sophisticated developers, a group that had put together with you know several very successful developers who had done major projects of this nature. 
it was never their intention to facilitate industrial development down there. And absent the city coming along, I'm still to this day convinced they would have developed this property at that time. So the city exercised eminent domain to acquire the property. It was a pretty contentious battle. We had very substantial differences in our views of how the property should be valued. The city's appraiser kind of looked at it as a parcel that was sort of industrial, but maybe had some potential for economic, other types of economic development going forward. He, in large part, based his valuation on properties that had that sort of industrial type uses and that sort of thing. Our appraiser viewed the property quite differently. He viewed it as being, one of the things I, I forgot to mention is the property, even though undeveloped, was in the footprint of the central business district in Detroit. Very contentious case, a lot of depositions, a lot of motion practice. I think this is a a classic case of where motion and limine practice had a very, very significant impact on the outcome because there were at least, you know, as I sit here today, there were at least three significant evidentiary issues which the trial judge ruled in our favor on, all of which were ultimately upheld by the by the Court of Appeals, which had a significant impact on the ultimate outcome, I think. And, and, you know, by way of example, there were some, there were some like-kind exchanges that took place on neighboring property, which really, which, which the, and actually they were between the two automobile companies, two of the major automobile manufacturers. And although they put, they put a value on the transfer of those properties, it wasn't a real cash transaction. It was more of a kind of a tax uh, focused uh, type of transaction. Those transactions, if the the numbers that they had put on those would not have been helpful to our cause. Uh, we've our, our motion in limine was to keep that evidence out, and the court agreed with us. And looking at law from really around around the country on that specific issue, there were some transactions that we were using that the city itself had engaged in down in the area, and the city filed a motion to keep those out. They were very helpful to us, actually. And there is a concept in eminent domain that you have to ignore the effect of the project on the value of a piece of property uh, when you're valuing it for eminent domain purposes, because no one should benefit. In theory, the property owner shouldn't benefit from the project. But in the same circumstance, if it somehow reduced the value of the property, the property owner shouldn't suffer as a result of the project. We were able to get that evidence in because the court ultimately determined that it was up to the jury to determine whether or not the project itself had any effect on the value of those sales. And they were obviously very helpful to us. Another issue that uh, we filed an important motion in limine on is, is we had our partnership group, which consisted of three different groups of partners, had some quarrels <laughs> during the course of the ownership of their property. It came out in discovery, and uh, we filed a motion in limine to keep that out on the basis that that really had nothing to do with the property, with the value of the property. Um, and of course, the city attorneys wanted to get that in because it would obviously have put our clients in a bad light. And the court also kept that evidence out. So that's three of about nine or ten different motions in limine, really the lion's share of which went our way. And to this day, I'm convinced that obviously had a significant, obviously we still had to do, try the case, and you know, uh, but obviously had a significant impact on the evidence that went in and the ultimate outcome. Right. And just pausing there, that really illustrates just how vital motions in limine can be because they really shape the trial and really shape what, what gets in front of the jury. 
Well, and, and the Court of Appeals opinion, you know, which is fairly lengthy and very detailed, addresses all of those motion and limine issues and sustained everything that the trial trial judge did, basically. And uh, ultimately, the jury verdict came out at about 90-some dollars a square foot, $25 million to our client as just compensation. And then one of the nice things in Michigan for property owners is at the end of the case, they are entitled to get reimbursed for their reasonable expert witness fees, which in this case were very substantial, and we were able to get all those reimbursed, as well as their reasonable attorney fees, which we were able to get fully reimbursed to the client. So the client really netted out the entire verdict, which was, you know, which was great for them. And obviously we were very pleased with that outcome. That is fantastic. And what is, what was the total verdict? $25 million. Then there was a substantial, because the case went on for quite some time through the court of appeals and application for leave to the Michigan Supreme Court, there was a very substantial amount of interest that was tacked onto that, uh, which I think was somewhere in the neighborhood of another $4 million, as I recall. Okay. Wow. Yeah, And I understand that's the biggest one of these uh, verdicts. It's the largest eminent domain jury verdict in Michigan, uh, still to this date. So it's held. It's uh, I think the we tried it in two thousand four, and then the Supreme Court ultimately ruled on it a couple of years later. So yeah, it's held up. That's an incredible result, Jerry. One interesting aspect of what you've shared is that this dispute, and I understand many eminent domain disputes that wind up in litigation, is that it was tried to a jury. How does that impact how you try these cases? I think it has a significant impact. Obviously, any jury trial is going to be much more detailed in terms of type of information you're providing with a with a trial judge. A lot of things can be picked up in writing and you don't have to go into the type of detail. But selection of juries and condemnation cases is, you know, can be very tricky, like in any case. You have to try and get a sense, you know, in your voir dire of who might be someone who would, you know, start out with preconceived notions that the government is always right. Why are you challenging that? There may be someone, you know, if I'm looking at it from the perspective of a government attorney, um, I'm looking for people who think the government can't do anything right. And that, you know, they have no business of, you know, taking people's property and, you know, whatever the people think they're entitled to, they should get. So, you know, it can be a complicated process. Obviously, we were fortunate with the jury we selected in that particular case. But I think the focus on jury selection and the level of detail you're going to go into, because the appraisals and all those sort of things, they're complicated. It's something that most, you know, citizens never deal with in their everyday life. So you really have to get down to the nitty gritty, explaining to them the details of how we got here, what this property means to our client and and how the valuation process works. And not saying you don't have to do all that with a trial judge, but obviously with a with a judge, you have a you know you don't you don't have to go in level detail, and they're going to have learned a lot of stuff about the case. Okay, very helpful insights. Well, turning from that case, some other matters. I mean, one other matter that you handled, or maybe are still handling, is the assembling the land for the Gordy Howe International Bridge. Can you tell us a little bit about that? All right, so a little bit of background, uh, particularly for those that aren't native Michiganders or in the Detroit area. Um, the city of Detroit is separated from Canada, Windsor, Canada, by the Detroit River. For many, many years, going back to the 1920s, been connected by a bridge, which is currently existing in an operation called the Ambassador Bridge, as well as a tunnel. 
And that's how people traditionally have gone back and forth. The Detroit crossing is the busiest international crossing in the country, I believe. And there's a tremendous amount of traffic, industrial traffic or manufacturing traffic that goes back and forth. It's a critical connection between Canada and Detroit for the auto industry and various other industries. A determination was made by the state some years ago that they wanted to engage in the construction of, a, of an additional bridge to deal with the increase in traffic. The project that's taking place right now is a joint effort between the state of Michigan and the government of Canada. They've been in the process, well, they were in the process, it's completed now, of acquiring land on both sides, the Detroit side and the Windsor, Windsor Canada side, uh, for purposes of assembling land sufficient to build a new bridge. Uh, that new bridge is called the Gordie Howe International Bridge, named after Gordie Howe, the great hockey player from the Detroit Red Wings. I'm not a, a hockey expert. I think he's a Canadian hockey player, but played for the Red Wings, which which would add significance to the. So he was from Canada originally, right. and he's really, you know, he's considered one of the greatest of all time, if not yeah. the greatest. Yep. Wayne Gretzky fans may debate it with you. Detroit <laughs> fans consider Gordy to be the guy. <laughs> yep. So land assembly is going on on both sides of the uh, of, of of the river. And the Michigan Department of Transportation, who was doing the land acquisition on the United States side, needed to acquire a substantial swath of land for purposes of building, obviously, the anchors for the bridge on this side, as well as customs and connections to freeways and all that. And there were there were many many condemnation cases filed. The bridge, is, the, the bridge on the Detroit side is in an area of Detroit called Del Rey, which has been historically sort of a combination industrial area and residential. Most of the properties that were acquired for this were industrial down by the river. We were fortunate enough to be involved in about 15 or 16 of those cases. And again, these were not really battles about public purpose. Um, they were battles about how much. I think we're at the point now where pretty much everything is resolved. There may be one case that's still pending out there, not one that, that we're directly involved in. But very interesting. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about our practice is you learn about things that you would never thought you'd ever learn about in your life. We learn stuff, we learn stuff about how bridges are constructed. And oh, I'm sure. Right. So, that's true of us litigators in general. Yes. Right? I think that's okay. Yeah. You have to be able to be, you know, sort of adaptive. To, to different types of businesses and, and different types of circumstances. And you become a temporary expert in a very, very narrow little niche before you move on to the next case. And not only you have to learn, you know, become an expert in the type of project that's being built, you have to become an expert in your individual clients' businesses and how they're being impacted. Because I, I don't think I mentioned earlier, one of the things about eminent domain, although you're entitled to get compensated for your property, you're also entitled to get compensated for business damages relating to how your business might be interrupted or even being put out of business as a result of the project. So that's an, and particularly in, in circumstances like with this bridge where we had active industrial operations that had to relocate, business interruption damages were a significant component that we had to look at. Well, that is all really interesting. I'd, I'd love to just draw some more general lessons from some of the stories that you shared, it seems you've spent your entire career fighting the government, either uh, negotiating with government entities uh, or litigating against them. How is it different fighting with government entities as opposed to other kinds of parties? I think the big difference 
between fighting with governmental entities and private parties is, A, the control of the purse strings, number one. I think generally, you know, when you're dealing in private parties against each other in litigation, costs of litigation, all those sorts of things are a, a major focus of both sides. Obviously, there's always the guy that says, I don't care how much it costs. And I'm not saying costs of litigation are not important to governmental agencies, but you have to be you know, ready for the proposition that they're going to throw everything they can at you. And there's no individual who's feeling the pinch in the same way. You know, you're not talking to the people whose pocket the money is coming right, out, right. let's put it that way. I think it, it, it causes you to have to have a lot of patience in terms of working through cases and things. Um, and, you know, obviously you're not just talking, even though you're dealing with one lawyer or one governmental agent who is, you know, assigned the lead in that particular matter, ultimately whatever you, you know, try, whatever you come to agreement on has to be approved by a body of people somewhere else. It has to be sold to them as well. So again, I, I think that and I'm not always the most patient person, but you you have to be understand that when you go into something like this, although sometimes things are resolved quickly, uh, you have to be prepared to be in it for the long haul. And uh, you have to be very patient in terms of dealing with those folks. And, you know, I've dealt with many fine people from governmental agencies, and I've dealt with a lot of people that I candidly didn't like or don't like. You know, they're like everybody else, right? Hey, that's true for any area of litigation or anything in life, right? Yes, do local politics play into these negotiations and disputes? And if so, how do you deal with those? It plays into it a little bit, but not candidly a lot. And I say that because it's ultimately not the politicians at the end of the day that are running the cases. You know, the individual departments and folks like that, they have their budgets. They're working within the parameters of their budgets. There's more politics involved, I think, when you get down to like the local municipal level, because elected officials in many, many communities have more, much more hands-on than like, you know, if you're dealing with like the state or the county or the federal government, obviously. Um, so, you know, oftentimes clients will say to me, I know so-and-so that works at that agency. Should I call that person or whatever? And, and my advice is, is generally speaking, no, because I don't really think that, you know, it really has, has an impact. What are they going to do? Yeah. I mean, there, there's a process involved. There's bodies that have to approve anything anyway. So in fact, where politics has an effect is the determination whether or not to do a project. Because obviously the politicians have to find the funding sources. They have to make the determinations whether the project, whether it's a public project that they want to invest money in and that sort of thing. And that happens long before you're on the scene. Yeah. Although, you know, we hear about things as they're happening because, you know, People will call me and say, hey, you know, my city's proposing to do such and such. They're proposing to widen such and such a road. They're proposing to build a city hall next door to me or whatever. Can they do that? Or, you know, can we start preparing for the possibility that they are going to do it? That sort of thing. So, and we read the papers like everybody else. Well, yeah, yeah. Let me close with this question. What's one thing that every lawyer needs to understand about litigating against government entities? Well, I, again, I think you need to understand that it's a little bit different than dealing with, you know, private business folks. Um, I think, again, patience is critical. And I think, you know, as with any other litigation, but particularly with regard to governmental agencies, you you have to be willing to work hard. You know, there's a lot of very talented lawyers, uh, very smart lawyers who 
litigating against governmental agencies, you know, they're just not cut out for it. Um, not because they're not willing to work hard, but it's just you're dealing with a little bit different kind of an animal. Well, with that, I appreciate your your time and your insights. If listeners want to find you, Jerry, where can they find you? Well, they can find me in uh, at the firm here, Williams, Williams, Ratner, and Plunkett in Birmingham, Michigan. It's J Pesic, P-E-S-I-C-K, at WWRPLaw.com. And the phone number here is 248-642-0333. Okay, terrific. Well, this has been very interesting and very enjoyable. Thanks so much for sharing your insights on the Litigation War Room. Max, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Hey, guys, I want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Ford's Legal Support. As busy litigators, there are never enough hours in the day. Why use a bunch of different legal support providers when there's one you can trust for all your needs? Need a process server in Chicago or a trial presentation specialist in L.A.? How about a court reporter in Dallas or a computer forensic expert in Atlanta? Ford's Legal has you covered. I use Ford's Legal in my litigation practice. They are responsive, economical, and ready to help every step of the way. By leveraging cutting-edge technology and best-of-class resources, Ford's Legal is a trusted partner of solo attorneys and AmLaw 100 law firms alike. Contact Ford's Legal today to learn how their team can assist your law practice. Visit them at FordsLegal.com. That's F-O-R-T-Z-L-E-G-A-L.com. Or call 844-730-4066. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room and please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the litigation war room.